from WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey, thanks for tuning in. I am excited to air another close to home business feature this week. And today we're talking to Carol Gillen, who along with her husband Jerry, runs Jerry's Collision Center in the village of Wurtsboro, down on the southern end of Sullivan County. I thought that since we've been doing a series on rural transportation infrastructure lately, it would be perfect timing to talk about a critical piece of our infrastructure, auto repair shops. Without these businesses and the folks who run them, it would be virtually impossible to live and get around in rural America unless you happen to be a car expert yourself with all the tools of the trade on hand. But Carol isn't just part of the backbone of our region through her and Jerry's work to keep our cars on the road. She's also deeply involved in her community, promoting and supporting small businesses throughout Wurtsboro. For starters, though, I wanted to know the story behind Jerry's Collision Center. I am the office manager for Jerry's Collision. Uh, Jerry's Collision has been operating since 2006. Um, So we're we're 15 years doing uh, auto body repairs, so collision work and also doing mechanical repairs here in the village of Wurtsboro. Um, My husband is the shop manager, so he has uh, been guiding those repairs and and been the cornerstone of the business for all of that time. So what was the impetus for going into business? Jerry ended up as high as he could go at at another shop uh, locally. Um, So what happened at that point was that some of the family came back into the shop and there, there just really wasn't room for him there at that point in time. Right. So um, it really became time, you know, for him to move along, either he was going to move himself into another very same position where he was going to be running a shop for somebody else and be at that whim and at that mercy, or he was going to try to do it himself. So, you know, it it took us a little bit. Uh, There was a lot of work that had to go on to try to purchase the building so there's a lot involved mm. with an automotive use historically on any property it leads to a lot of environmental concerns that have to be proved in order for you to be able to successfully uh, make that acquisition. But with uh, about a year's worth of environmental testing, we finally were able to prove that the property was sound and that we were a good candidate to uh, have a mortgage with, by, with the bank. <laughs> That's so interesting. So, is it like the state that needs to know that the work that's going on there is not going to be contaminating the ground or that the space already is safe? What we had to show um, was that the space was already safe in order for the bank to be able to feel that their interests were protected. So if, if we couldn't prove to the bank that the property was going to be sound from an environmental perspective, then they certainly don't want to be on the hook for it. You know, they don't want all of a sudden their what they think is a valuable property to become a brownfield or something. To them. Right. 
So you guys are right in Wurtsboro, right on, is it Sullivan Street? On Sullivan Street, yes. Mm-hmm. So was that space previously a auto shop as well? It had a history of that. This is a really interesting building because it's had a lot of different histories through the years. So um, the last use just before we purchased it was an auction use. Um, Jerry and I actually wandered through here one night when they were holding an auction and it was like floor to ceiling, like knickknack and bric-a-brac (laughs) in the uh, spray booth. So here's this very important piece of equipment that, you know, cost tens of thousands of dollars and it was functioning like a shed or a showroom for, you know, knickknacks and things. So, you know, it, it needed to be bought. It just was calling to us that, you know, it needed to be repurposed back to what it had been before. So prior to that, it did have an automotive use. Um, there also was a statuary at one time. There was a, a gentleman used to store a plane in here and fly the plane out of the building, out of the back in the field. So it, there have been some very interesting characters here at 61 Sullivan Street. Uh, wow, was, that's wild. Uh, windmills at one point, too. So it's been a very interesting, colorful past. <laughs> Um, I'm curious about you and Jerry's kind of professional background. Then, So did you have bookkeeping and business experience that you could pull from in, in starting this business? Yeah. So I had tried a little business venture of my own as the kids were young. And um, I tried a consulting career uh, based on what I had been doing previously. So Totally unrelated kind of a field, except that I did learn some of the establishing a business kind of skills, you know, the fact that I needed to do quarterly filings, the bookkeeping things. I had done none of those things before. So I relied heavily on another mom that, you know, was in kind of the same situation where we were both uh, trying very hard to be parents full time and keep our minds from going crazy part time and, and, you know, do something that kept our skills going. So um, she taught me a lot of bookkeeping um, and enough to know, you know, enough to get myself around. So that did make it so that I could perform this function for Jerry. You know, prior to that, I really had a science background. I worked as a lab technician at, uh, you're probably familiar with Comar Laboratories over in Port Jervis. No, I don't think so. A lot of people know of that particular place. It was a very Mm -hmm employer, you know, when I was coming out of high school and stuff. So I did work there in a bachelor, an associate's degree in um, math and science out of Orange County Community College. So, you know, it was just a, a big reach for me to actually try to go into a business kind of field because I didn't, as close as I got to a business class was typing in high school. <laughs> the rest of it was, you know, not in that track at all. So um, <laughs> Jerry's always done this kind of work. Um Probably the only other job he ever had where he didn't was when he was just a kid in school and he was, you know, stocking shelves at Lloyd's. He worked in the produce department, he would tell you. But other than that, he has always been in this industry. He came through um, as a frame tech and, you know, became a a licensed adjuster and worked his way through. So, And how does one get into the field of fixing and working on vehicles because you know obviously it's not something that they teach you in school but it's a really technical and and detailed field we actually do have um good programs uh, at either side of us so Hmm. here we are actually located in wurtsboro between middletown and monticello 
um, both Orange and Sullivan County have BOCES programs for mechanical technicians and for auto body. Um, we do struggle, though, to find new candidates for positions. We're currently looking right now, you know, and just like everybody else, we are really struggling to try to fill the couple of openings that we have. Jerry would really like to bring on both a mechanic a mechanical technician and an auto body technician. The auto body technician we've been looking for for easily a month and a half, two months now, and um, have been really just striking out as far as getting the candidate in. So, and I did reach out to both of those programs as well. So I'm not sure where they're all going. I know they're, <laughs> they're graduating students every year. So, um, but we seem to actually, the technicians that are here are people that we've known for a long time. You know, they're mm. really not people that we've just met. They're people that have been here for a very long time with us. So we have a, we do have had the luxury of having a pretty uh, continuous workforce and that's huge. And maybe this is a little bit of a side topic here, but I'm so curious kind of how this is happening right now, where it seems like virtually all businesses up and down any given main street are trying to find talented employees or just employees in general right now. The phenomenon of there not being adequate number of candidates for people to hire, I am very perplexed about myself and I've spent know a lot of time trying to think my way through that as well like what could possibly be the reason um i do kind of think that you know the scuttlebutt that you hear about you know all people are out on uh, unemployment and you know they're not going to come back to work but our field was essential from the beginning so we didn't right. suffer these kind of layoffs my people aren't the, the candidate for me shouldn't be on unemployment he should have been working the whole time, um, you know, or maybe be a new entry into the workforce that wants to come on. But yeah. I don't, my candidate was ever really out there on unemployment. So I don't understand how it aligns really. I, I'm very perplexed myself, but it, it has been difficult to find people that are adequately skilled. Uh, we've had listings out there with, I don't know. We've been in print publications. We've been on social media. I, I listed with the labor department even. Um, and so far with months of looking, we've had uh, one applicant. Just wow. One. Yeah, just one. I'm wondering if a lot of people are going into new fields and have taken opportunities during the pandemic to try things maybe that are less in-person kind of work. I don't know. But like you were saying, your industry is absolutely essential and arguably having a mechanic in town may be the most essential employee anywhere in town because without someone who knows how to keep vehicles on the road, mm -hmm. our region lacking strong public transit and whatnot outside of move Sullivan, even though that's only stopping in a few locations around the county is pretty much inaccessible. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I do believe that that had a lot to do with why very early um, when the governor did put out the listing of what businesses were essential and what businesses would continue to operate when the quarantine first happened, you know, automotive repair was deemed essential and we stayed out. The really weird thing about that though, um, and it, it kind of, took us aback as we were trying to work our way through the 
availability of the vaccine, right? We were not so essential once that happened. So we actually met our eligibility to be vaccinated when our age groups became eligible because by employment, even though they left us out here to work among the people and not be quarantined, we were not eligible based on our employment. You know, if you were an ambulance worker or if you were in the medical field, and certainly they did have more contact than us. I don't mean to begrudge, I really don't. And I'm happy to wait my turn, but I do think that was just a little bit of a slap in the face, right? <laughs> a little bit Throughout the course of the pandemic, did business change very much? Because I imagine that a lot of people were off the roads more than they normally are. Absolutely. Yeah. It changed dramatically. We pretty much had people just kind of sweep in and, you know, just keep yourselves busy. You know, we're, we're mm. all here, you know, but our, the appointment book was really empty when things first happened, you know, and, and the phone would ring with just, you know, cancellations because of the quarantine and, you know, people rightfully so, you know, everybody was trying to be responsible and do what they're supposed to do. Right. Um, but it, everybody's experience varied so much. We would have some people that would still keep their appointment and they think they were going to sit right here in the office with us and wait with us. And we're like, no, no, you can't do that. We're a drop-off service only, you know, like we tried to put in some control measures of our own to protect ourselves. Cause certainly, right. you know, we have an obligation to our families and our staff that, you know, we don't want to become the next hot spot of the virus. So we did yeah. try to kind of ratchet things down and put some controls in that would, you know, maintain six foot distancing, keep as few people around us as possible. So we we tried to adopt a drop off service um, and that worked fairly well. You know, some people were more receptive than others to, to trying to do that. You know, and other than that, we would try to very conscientiously understand if somebody did need to stay, you know, then we made sure that that was the only person that was here. I'm very thankful that some of those kinds of restrictions have loosened because that was really difficult to try to maintain. You know, so that it, we're, I'm glad that that's passed. Um, we have seen a huge shift in how the insurance companies interact with us. So they had been working toward this kind of, you know, remote experience. And you see it all the time, too, I'm sure, just in the commercials, right? You see things about uh, using your phone app and mm-hmm. having your estimate done, yeah. right? So. All of that stuff probably leaped forward by a good, I don't know, six years versus the pace that they were at and how it just kind of happened instantly. So they all, all of the major insurance companies came on board with all these varied platforms that they had, all of a sudden they had to turn on and all of us had to be able to use them. And they were all different. (laughs) So it was a real challenge to try to convey information to the insurance companies, you know, thank God for the internet and all those kind of things that do that data sharing possible. But there were a lot of kinks in the works and some of those are still being worked out, you know, even after all of this time. And I would also suggest to you that, you know, the insurance companies failed to understand the fact that they put a great deal of their workload upon us. So they shifted a, a great deal of time and manpower and effort, you know, with absolutely no compensation to us or anything to that effect, you know, so a great deal of their workload was shifted particularly to Jerry's shoulders because he is our independent licensed adjuster. So he would be the one that would have to do that work. And, 
I recall one particular event where he had two cars torn down and he's going to do a virtual adjustment with them. He's going to write this virtual estimate with this other adjuster on the phone. He's mm. got the two cars torn down so that all the damage is exposed and um, the phone just rang and rang and rang and it didn't connect for a good hour and a half and a half of him just walking around with two cars torn apart in the middle of the shop, which interrupts the workflow, you know, throughout the entire building. So, you know, some things have been really just a disaster. They haven't been smooth at all, but hopefully they get better. other businesses, uh, the car industry, the car repair industry is really um, almost price fixed, if you will. So um, we don't just kind of set our rates and, you know, open the door and go about our business. There's, there are ceilings for us, you know, at multiple locations. So one of those ceilings is um, a downward pressure always from the insurance companies to set labor rates, right? So um, since they actually get to dictate what the cost of the repair is going to be in that way, um, they get to say, you know, oh, we're, we're, we're going to pay you, you know, um, $50 an hour, say, where our posted rate might be $55 an hour or $65 an hour. And it has gone up through the years to try to absorb the health benefits increases that we get year over year. You know, um, we don't have that flexibility in our industry to do that. So we can appeal, you know, we can try to uh, work with the adjuster that's in front of us at the time and say, you know, we really, we need more than that. You got to do better than that. And it's just a constant conversation to try to get those um, insurance companies to try to pull those rates up a little bit for us. And so we can do better overall. You know, there's, there's always a ceiling for us and there's always that downward pressure. Which, Holy cow. So insurance companies can just lowball the heck out of you guys. Mm-hmm. And at some point, even if you try to push back, they can just say, we're not going to give you more than that. And exactly. I, mean, I mean, at that point, do you just have to suck it up and take the loss? I mean, so what we try to do is always, we always try to work within. So, you know, Jerry is, has great relationships with most of these adjusters that would come in because he knows them, you know, right. he's worked with them for years and years. They're local people too, which is another shift actually related to the pandemic. We don't have, we lost all of those contacts. We don't have those people with us. So we're working with people that might be in, you know, Iowa or something. They're they're not even in the same state most of the time. So they're certainly not people we know. But, uh, you know, because you develop those relationships and you have that respect and they understand that we really, we want to fix the car. We want to fix the car the right way. We want a good product in the end, you know, that he's, he's earned their respect. So they do respect his estimate when they see it and they know, you know, this isn't, this is the real deal. This is what this car needs. So, you know, they know that going in and we have kind of lost that, you know, with this whole pandemic remoteness, you know, but. You know, we didn't talk about what essential services 
are really pre-pandemic. It was just something that I think we all kind of just took for granted. But since, you know, even pre-pandemic, a business like the Collision Center is so necessary to the community, how does time off work for you guys? Do you do you ever, you know, get to take a vacation? And if so, do you basically say, look, if you were in an accident during this week, sorry, you got to wait. Yeah, it's a huge challenge for us. Um, what we've done from the beginning and, you know, not even pandemic related is we have made a practice of closing the shop right down for a week. Hmm. So we close the week going into Labor Day and everybody takes off. So, you know, we we do offer paid time off. So, you know, our workers need to use their uh, vacation time, you know, to, to be able to do that. So um, we always encourage them to try to keep a week for that particular week. And other than that, the real only time off that we provide for ourselves at all, and it does get a little bit stressful, you know, you're not giving yourself much time away, is um, recently we've added all of the federal holidays. So <laughs> Carol's by Carol's decree, <laughs> we are closed when the post office is closed. So, you know, it, that does give us a few long weekends to just kind of unwind a little bit. Right. But it, that is nice. a challenge from a brick and mortar perspective. That is a real challenge for a small business, you know, to try to get any time off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now I understand that you are also very involved in the community outside of running this business. Could you talk a little bit about that as well? So we're very blessed in the village of Wordsboro to have the Wordsboro Board of Trade. It's a very old association. Um, It's geared toward the strength of the community, um, the strength of the business community in particular, and, you know, how we can all get together and support ourselves. We're a very small group, but you know, small but mighty, I would say. You know, we we really get a lot done. We do all that we can do to try to make sure that there's foot traffic in the village. So a lot of times we're trying to sponsor events, you know, and, and do ac- different activities that'll bring people in. And hopefully they find, you know, a business that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise found. Or they, you know, sit down and enjoy a meal at the diner where they may not have otherwise had the opportunity to be here, you know. So we do things like that to try to keep the community engaged with us, keep traffic in the village. And um, I find that to be actually very rewarding and spend a little, probably too much time, you know, playing with the girls. <laughs> so, you know, we we really get along very well and the little group just does a lot of work. You know, a lot happens on the backs of a few sometimes, you know, and they really, they, they do a great job and I'm really, you know, couldn't be more proud of what they do manage to pull off with, you know, the little bit of uh, elbow grease that they have. We do get a lot of things done. I don't think I've heard of, and, you know, this could totally just be my own ignorance, uh, of local boards of trade before. Is that similar to a chamber of commerce? And how, how does that similar differ? to a chamber of commerce? Exactly. But we're just, we're hyper local. So mm. we might not have the opportunity to provide say a pooled health benefit, which more like a chamber of commerce does have some of those larger projects that they can do. Right. But, you know, we're hyper local. So we really focus on our main street 
and, you know, things that we can do on our main street in our community, you know, to keep keep people going, keep that buzz up. You have to keep people, you know, knowing that we're here, right? It's very important for people to know that we're here. ask two car related questions are there any types of vehicles that uh, come in where everyone just goes oh god this one again like i wish we didn't have to work on this you know make of car or something like that jerry was very upset with me today for having a volvo in the building (laughs) (laughs) yeah they can be particularly difficult and a lot Uh. of that has to do with the information sharing from the manufacturers. You know, some manufacturers are much more open with uh, sharing information. So that gives us the resources that we need to be able to try to diagnose and such, you know. So um, we spend a great deal of, you know, effort on a monthly basis trying to find the resources that we need and to provide our technicians so that they can thoroughly diagnose an issue when it comes in. Um, You might try to look up something on that particular make of car, you know, so you you go and you try to look up a code for a Volvo and you're not going to get the diagnostic pathway that would have been provided and accessible to you if you were working on, say, a Chevrolet or a Ford, you know. Yeah, it's just a totally different set of information that the manufacturer releases that then our technicians can use to try to um, work their way through. That's so interesting. And so all of that information about different pathways and how the car is set up and what a technician would need to do to fix different things, is that all put out in some like online database or something by car no, manufacturers we, that you guys have access to? We use subscription services to be able oh, okay. to level of detail. Yeah. So there are subscription services that we, and multiple ones. So we use several different things, you know, um, all that is a big one that's been around for years and years. Um, CCC is a estimating software that we use. Uh, The diagnostic tools each have their own um, software that goes with them too. So those are the, the little handheld units that the technician will plug into your data port and you know, get your car to tell it it's soul searching problems, right? So it spits out a few codes and then the guys take those codes and they go try to make sense out of, okay, what do we do with that information now? What, what, um, what steps am I going to have to take to really understand what that number means, you know? So. um, Hmm. And between domestic and foreign cars, do you guys have kind of feelings one way or another, opinions one way or another on them? So most of the domestics are easier to work with. Jerry would tell you that a Toyota pretty much is a domestic these days too. You know, so even though we think of that as not being particularly a domestic brand, Jerry would tell you that, you know, Toyota's, the Honda's pretty much too. You know, you can find the information you need. Um, the uh, the higher end imports really, the, you know, the Mercedes, the BMW, the Volvos, those could more secretive is probably a better word. They're, they're more able to hold that information tight to the chest. 
Um, there's been a lot of litigation in the automotive repair field to try to force uh, manufacturers to share that kind of information so that they don't have a corner on the market particularly. And so that, you know, there are independent shops such as us that can um, work on these vehicles. The last thing I wanted to ask about is that as newer cars with each passing year become more and more computerized and complex Mm -hmm. to the point where some people are starting to drive cars that are can pretty much drive themselves almost entirely. Are they becoming also harder and harder to fix? And does Jerry and the team, you know, do they find themselves reading up on all this stuff that they never originally learned when they were learning how to fix all these aspects of cars, just because that stuff didn't exist at the time? Sure. So there's a huge um, learning curve on all of that stuff, you know, and a huge need for us to try to keep up as best we can with, um, you know, investing in additional diagnostics all the while. The more of those safety features that come into uh, the vehicles, and, you know, we are seeing some of them come into the shop these days. Um, For the most part, you know, we're able to do repairs completely until we get very much to the end. So at the end point, there's going to be a reprogramming step that's going to make each of those safety features then be recalibrated. So that recalibration step we have had to take to the respective dealer for that particular make and um, have them do that finishing step of the reprogramming to specification. Um, But other than that, we've been able to do the repairs. Thank you so much to Carol Gillen for taking the time to chat about Jerry's Collision Center in this week's business feature episode of Close to Home. If you or someone you know is looking for work In the auto repair industry, you can find contact information for Jerry's Collision at www.jerryscollisioncenterinc.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Close to Home, and this time we'll be moving away from our series on rural transportation infrastructure and looking at another critical building block of our local communities that I know I hold near and dear to my heart, our public libraries. Until then, I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home, a production of WJFF Radio Catskill. I'll see you next week.